You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 192, The Wyoming Valley Massacre. After the British evacuated Philadelphia, they consolidated their forces around New York City. By early July 1778, General Clinton's army was still settling into New York following the Battle of Monmouth in northern New Jersey. General Washington moved his Continentals into camps in northern New Jersey where they could challenge any movements by the British out of New York City. Although the British regulars were taking up defensive positions, that did not mean Americans were safe from attack. British agents had been trying to encourage Indian tribes in Canada and upstate New York and along the western frontiers to support the king's efforts to suppress the rebellion. The British warned tribal leaders that, unchecked, the colonists would take more of their tribal land. They also gave some tribes hope of reclaiming lands that had been taken from them, especially to tribes who helped the king during this rebellion. Back in episodes 151 and 152, I talked about the mostly Native American force that was assembled under General Barry St. Ledger to assist Burgoyne's army by capturing Fort Stanwix in western New York. That army planned to meet up with the main British army at Albany. The Patriot militia stopped this advance at Oriskany, then General Benedict Arnold forced the British and their native allies at Fort Stanwix to flee back to Canada. That, however, was only one setback in a larger effort to use local tribes. British agents remained active all along the frontier, trying to encourage warriors to join in a continuing campaign against the rebels. One such agent was Colonel John Butler, who would go on to form Butler's Rangers. Butler had been born in Connecticut, but moved to upstate New York as a boy. His father, who held a commission as captain in the British Army, settled the family in the Mohawk Valley. As a teenager, Butler had interacted with native tribes, getting involved in the fur trade. He learned to speak several native languages and often found work as an interpreter. In 1755, he received a commission as a captain in the newly created Indian Department of the British government. During the French and Indian War, Butler had served as an officer under Indian agent Sir William Johnson, commanding a Native American force of mostly Iroquois warriors. Following the war, Butler's venture in fur trading and farming had put him at the head of a wealthy and powerful family in the region. By the 1770s, Butler had become a prosperous landowner with over 26,000 acres, the second largest landowner in the area, next only to Sir William Johnson. In 
Butler had become a pillar of the community. He served as a judge, as a representative to the colonial legislature, and a lieutenant colonel in the Tryon County Militia. After William Johnson's death, and after Johnson's successor, Guy Johnson, traveled to London for an extended time, Butler became acting superintendent of the Iroquois Six Nations. When the revolution began, Butler spoke up as a leading loyalist. He soon had to flee to Canada to avoid capture by patriots, although his wife and several of his children were captured. His family would remain in custody for nearly five years until they reunited in 1781 as part of a prisoner exchange. Going from respected community leader to war refugee only made Butler eager to bring the fight back to New York and put down the rebellion. When the war began, British policy was to keep native tribes neutral or to use them primarily as scouts. Butler was an early advocate of using loyal tribes like the Iroquois as warriors in battle. By 1776, Butler was organizing loyalists and natives to assist with resistance to the Continental Army's invasion of Canada. In 1777, he helped to organize the warriors who marched with General St. Ledger to capture Fort Stanwix, and he was involved in the Battle of Oriskany and the subsequent retreat. Following the Army's withdrawal to Canada, Butler traveled to Quebec. There, General Guy Carleton commissioned him to maintain a permanent regiment of Loyalists. Butler organized both Loyalist refugees from New York as well as Native warriors, and the regiment became known as Butler's Rangers. Following the capture of Burgoyne's army, Butler's Rangers went into winter camp around Niagara with plans to go on the offensive the following spring. The entry of France into the war and London's decision to evacuate Philadelphia and go on the defensive did nothing to deter Butler from launching an offensive with his native forces. In the spring of 1778, they looked south for possible targets to strike. The Wyoming Valley is a large area in what is today northeastern Pennsylvania, around modern-day Scranton. At the time, control of this area was still a matter of dispute between Pennsylvania and Connecticut. During the colonial era, royal charters often gave vague or contradictory information on borders of various colonies. As a result, colonists often had to fight to assert their legal claims to land. Connecticut claimed that it was entitled to all of what is today northern Pennsylvania and even parts of what is today northern Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois. At the same time, Pennsylvania had claimed all of that same land as well as most of what is today western New York. King Charles II had granted this land to Connecticut back when the Dutch still controlled New Netherlands, what later became New York. The grant seemed to be an attempt to challenge Dutch control of the area. After the British took New York, this grant mattered much less to those in London, since these lands were all now British colonies. Near the end of his reign, Charles II granted much of the same territory to William Penn, since at the time the area was controlled by the Susquehannock Indians, no colonists were really moving there anyway. Although the Iroquois lived further north in New York, they asserted control over the natives who were living in the Wyoming Valley. 
Those tribes living in the area were not members of the Six Nations, but they did speak Iroquois. In asserting its claims to the land, Connecticut made a deal with the Iroquois for control of the Wyoming Valley and the right to settle there. They signed the agreement just before the French and Indian War began. With the outbreak of that war, Connecticut did not really try to settle that area. Near the end of the war, the local Delaware under Tidiusing resisted encroachment by settlers. I discussed those events way back in episode 18. Tidiusing was attempting to broker a deal with Pennsylvania to keep the valley for the local tribes. After Tidiusing was killed, probably by fellow Indians who opposed his attempts to start a war, his son massacred a small outpost of about 40 Connecticut settlers in the valley. The attackers tortured and then murdered 10 of the men to send a message that settlers were not welcome there. The attack had its intended effect, as Connecticut did not send any more settlers in the years following the war. Later, the Iroquois reneged on the deal with Connecticut and sold the land once again to Pennsylvania. Colonists from Pennsylvania, known as Pennamites, began to settle the Wyoming Valley in the 1760s, mostly in relatively isolated farms along the Susquehanna River. Alarmed by this development, Connecticut Yankees once again formed their own colonization plan, establishing the town of Wilkesboro in 1767. This kicked off what is known as the First Pennamite-Yankee War in 1769. Pennsylvania militia tried to force the Connecticut settlers to leave. Both sides established forts, had guns, and tried to force their will on the other. But it wasn't really a full-scale war. Only three people were killed over the course of two years. The violence, however, once again largely deterred further immigration from Connecticut. In 1771, King George III confirmed Connecticut's claim to the land. Things remained relatively calm for a few years. Then, in 1773, with the support of the King's Privy Council ruling, Connecticut sent another group of colonists who founded the town of Westmoreland. Once again, Pennamites resisted what they saw as an incursion on land that they owned. In 1775, the fighting flared up again in what became known as the Second Pennamite yankee War. On Christmas Day, 1775, a Pennamite force of about 600 militia attacked a Connecticut fort at what became known as the Battle of Rampart Rocks. The Yankee defenders managed to hold off the assault and keep their position. This inspired the Connecticut legislature to establish Westmoreland County, which soon grew to a population of over 3,000 Connecticut transplants. When the Revolution began, most of the Connecticut Yankees joined with the Patriots, while the Pennamites largely backed the Loyalists. Aware of this division, Colonel Butler attempted to recruit Pennamite Loyalists to attack the Connecticut outposts in the Wyoming Valley. When local Loyalists combined with Butler's Rangers, who were New York Loyalists, and with the Seneca and Delaware warriors, they created a pretty imposing force for the region. Connecticut militia in the Wyoming Valley had four forts, with only a few hundred militia to garrison them in times of emergency. These were Wilkes-Barre, Forty, 
Wintermoot, and Jenkins. None of these forts were of a substantial size to fight off a large army. These were more stockades designed to provide some protection against smaller attacks that were common in the ongoing fighting between the Yankees and Panamites. The Patriots in the area were already at lower strength. Many of the Connecticut militia in the area had volunteered with the Continental Army and were off fighting in New Jersey. Those who remained behind were often younger or older men who could not endure the longer military campaigns. This reduced militia would quickly find itself well outnumbered. On June 28th, the same day as the Battle of Monmouth, an advanced team from Butler's Column attacked a gristmill, capturing and later killing three locals. A few days later, Butler's force of over 600 men arrived, supported by another 400 or so local Pennamite loyalists. Butler's first action in the area was to demand the surrender of Fort Wintermoot. The garrison had to surrender their arms and supplies but were then permitted to leave on the promise that they would not take up arms for the remainder of the war. The small garrison surrendered the fort and departed. Following that, Butler sent a message to nearby Fort Forty to demand the surrender of that garrison as well. In case you're wondering, Fort Forty was named for the 40 settlers from Connecticut who had built it years earlier. At Fort Forty, Colonel Zebulon Butler no relation to the British commander John Butler, commanded a militia force of 350 to 400 patriots. Zebulon was also a veteran of the French and Indian War. He had come to the Wyoming Valley in 1769 from Connecticut. He had fought the Panamites in earlier disputes, capturing Fort Wyoming in 1771 and leading the successful defense at Rampart Rocks in 1775. At this time, Zebulon Butler was actually a Continental colonel from the 2nd Connecticut Regiment. He happened to be home on leave and was attempting to recruit more volunteers for the Continental Army when the war came to his home in the Wyoming Valley. Now, given his rank and experience, Zebulon took command of the efforts to defend against the invasion. At a council of war, the more senior officers wanted to wait for more reinforcements. Others, however, wanted to attack right away. As I said, most of the men of prime fighting age were already away in the Continental Army. The militia was made up of men who were too old or too young to serve on those campaigns. The older men wanted to wait for more reinforcements. They expected the arrival of at least a hundred more neighboring militia shortly, and had also sent riders to Philadelphia to get Continental support. They also had no good intelligence about how large a force they actually faced. The experienced butler agreed with this group and cautioned restraint. Others, however, strongly advocated for an immediate attack against the invaders, particularly among the younger soldiers. They called Butler a coward and said that they would march without him if he did not want to fight. In the end, those calling for an immediate attack prevailed. On July 3rd, a force of nearly 400 Yankee militia marched toward Fort Wintermoot. At the time, it seemed the plan was to get near the fort, but then form a defensive line to determine just how large a force they would actually be facing. As they approached the fort, a few men announced they were marching into a trap and fell out of the column. 
Now, back at the fort, the British force received word of this advancing enemy column. The British commander at the fort ordered it burned, but then formed his men outside of the fort, mostly in the woods, to prevent the enemy from counting their numbers. He sent his Indian warriors to hide in the forest near the fort. The American militia saw the fort on fire and took it as an indication that the British were abandoning the fort and retreating. So they quickened their pace to catch up with the British. They hoped to find a retreating column that they could hit in the rear. That, however, was not what they found. As they approached the burning fort, the attackers indicated that they were aware that the enemy was still in the area and called on them to show themselves on the field. The undisciplined Yankee militia began firing from about 200 yards out as they advanced on the British line. They were way too far away for their muskets to hit anything. By some accounts, the Yankees fired at least three volleys as they advanced, with almost no effect. When they got to within about 100 yards, the Rangers rose up and fired back. The Seneca warriors rose up from their position on the right flank, fired, and then with loud war whoops charged the militia. The Americans panicked at the surprise of the charging Indians. Field commanders attempted to keep the lines formed and face both the Rangers and the Indians. The militia, at least by some accounts, tried to hold their lines but were quickly overrun. They turned and fled the field in disorder. The entire engagement had lasted only 30 to 45 minutes. Only a small portion of the nearly 400 American forces escaped the field that day. About 60 men were able to outrun the attack by the Rangers and the Indians. The rest were either killed or captured. And we don't know exactly how many died on the field, because those who were captured did not remain prisoners very long. As with many battles between Loyalists and Patriots, or between settlers and Indians, combatants showed little respect for the enemy's life or for any generally accepted rules of warfare. Many years after the battle, a historian wrote down accounts based on oral history. He recounted what happened next. Quote, Men were transformed into demons, and while Indian marksmen skillfully wounded the flying Yankees in the thigh bone, thus disabling them, yet saving them for future Tories. Both Tories and Indians clubbed and scalped them as they tried to conceal themselves nearby or in the water. Many of the Yankees fled to a nearby swamp or dove into the Susquehanna River, seeking to hide themselves from their pursuers. But the Tories and Indians followed after them, killing them without mercy. One account is of a militiaman named Henry Pencil, who hid in the willows after being wounded by an Indian arrow. His brother, John Pencil, who was fighting with the Loyalists, found his wounded brother. Henry cried for his brother to spare him. John replied, quote, Mighty well, but you are a damned rebel. He raised his musket and shot his brother dead. The writer commented, quote, Even the Indians were struck with horror at this deed. Others reported lancing men in the river, allowing their corpses to float away. Even the soldiers who were not killed immediately on the field did not fare any better. Over the course of the night, the Loyalists and Indians tortured and murdered their prisoners. One account describes militia captain Bidlack, 
His captors threw him into a campfire that night, then held him down with pitchforks as the screaming, struggling man burned to death. Another account reports of an Indian queen named Esther who forced 18 prisoners to kneel around a rock. She chanted and danced as she bashed out the brains of each victim one at a time. In the end, the British reported only five prisoners surviving that night. The British commander reported that his men took 227 scalps. Many more were missing, who were also likely killed. British casualties amounted to two loyalists and one Indian killed, and another eight Indians wounded. Following the massacre, the locals surrendered Fort Forty and two other small forts. The rangers disarmed the garrisons and permitted them parole. The British commander said little about the massacre of prisoners in his reports, but did stress that non-combatant women and children were treated with utmost dignity. Now, by this, he meant that they were allowed to live, but really not much else. Over the next few days, the Loyalist forces destroyed over 1,000 houses and barns in the area, forcing all the Patriot inhabitants to flee with almost nothing. They confiscated all their property, including thousands of cattle, sheep, horses, and harvested grain. What they could not carry away, they destroyed. The effort had the intended effect. It forced virtually all surviving Connecticut settlers or others who backed the Patriot cause to abandon the Wyoming Valley. The massacre became a rallying cry for the Patriots. It would eventually lead to retribution, but that would happen the following year and will be the topic of future episodes. The Seneca tribe later strongly denied accusations of these atrocities. Whether true or not, the stories of the atrocities had the effect of spreading fear and a desire for revenge among the Patriots. Next week, we're going to return to Philadelphia as Silas Dean attempts to clear his name before Congress. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to Train Ants, George Davis, Lewis White, and Robert Hunter for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Also, thanks to Lisa Ham for support at the Robert Morris Circle level on Patreon. Thanks also to Chip Brenner and Steve Berger for their continuing support on Patreon. I also appreciate one-time contributions via PayPal from Bruce Racond. 
Everyone who can chip in even a few dollars helps keep this podcast freely available for everyone else who cannot. I also wanted to remind everyone again that I have a weekly newsletter, which provides more reading materials that are relevant to each week's episode. You can sign up on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. In my newsletter, I also include a list of live online events related to the American Revolution that are happening each week. Many of these are free events by great speakers. One of the groups putting on these events is a group called History Camp, which I've mentioned before. A couple of years ago, I was trying to bring History Camp to Philadelphia. It's a day-long event of great speakers on a wide variety of history topics. We were all set to have our first event in May 2020, when the pandemic canceled everything. All History Camps were canceled for 2020, and it looks like all of 2021 is going to be a bust as well. The good news is that the folks who run History Camp are adapting. They hold weekly virtual events every Thursday evening, which are free to attend. I'm also pleased to announce that they will be holding a virtual History Camp America in July. This will be a day-long event with multiple speakers, just like the in-person events that we hope to return soon. But this, of course, will be a virtual event, and I hope anyone who's interested will consider attending. The American Revolution Podcast has partnered with History Camp to help make this event a success, and I will provide more details as they become available. So this week I covered some of the fighting between Loyalists and Patriots that took place away from the main armies. In this case, it was an ongoing fight between Connecticut and Pennsylvania that had been going on for well over a century over which colony controlled the Wyoming Valley. This was just the sort of dispute that led Loyalists to the conclusion that the colonies needed a king. Without a king to decide such border disputes, they would inevitably devolve into war and mass slaughter. Even if everyone did not always like the judgments in London, those judgments at least provided a conclusive and peaceful resolution to such disputes. Others, of course, would argue that even when the Privy Council in London declared something, that didn't always really settle the issue and fighting continued anyway. But even these ongoing disputes were likely to be more muted than an all-out war. When the Revolutionary War began, British officials tried to use these intercolonial disputes to sow division between the now states. It is probably the main reason why local Pennamites in this area became loyalists. Their enemies from Connecticut were patriots, and they were not going to serve on the same side as their enemies. Now, I have to admit, I struggled to keep the two sides straight in this story because my family has lived in Pennsylvania for 300 years and I've always thought of the Pennsylvanians as supporting the Patriot cause. Now, while I knew Pennamites were loyalists, I kept wanting to think of them somehow in the back of my head as the good guys, and the Connecticut invaders as the enemy, while at the same time conflicting with my bias to think of the Patriots as the good guys against the loyalists. Of course, I try to present the facts neutrally, but we all have our inherent biases in our heads, and I suppose my pro-Pennsylvania bias is just a holdover from when such things mattered. Typically, in such disputes, those who sided with the Loyalists often lost their claims to those who sided with the Patriots. 
In this case, however, the Continental Congress eventually backed Pennsylvania's claims to the territory in 1787. There was actually a third Yankee-Pennamite War that broke out in 1784 after the Revolutionary War had ended. That one did not fully resolve the dispute either. Pennsylvania attempted to resolve the fighting by recognizing some of the private land claims by Connecticut settlers in 1787. However, the disputes remained a matter of contention for many years following. Final resolution really wouldn't happen until 1799, when the federal government conclusively established that the area did belong to Pennsylvania and ordered reimbursement for private land claims held under Connecticut claims, or allowing the Connecticut settlers to continue living there as Pennsylvanians. There's not a good deal of reading material on this dispute. However, if you want to read more, my book recommendation this week is a biography. It's called Zebulon Butler, Hero of the Revolutionary Frontier by Linda A. Fossler and James R. Williamson. Zebulon Butler, of course, was the leader of the Connecticut Defenders in the events I described in this episode. He was also involved in the ongoing disputes for many years, both before and after the events I covered today. His biography covers these events in more detail. The book came out in 1995, but it's pretty hard to find already. It's also less than 200 pages, and more than a third of those pages are taken up by notes and index. So it's not a huge amount of content, but it is very well researched and gives the best window I can find into the long-standing fighting between Pennsylvania and Connecticut settlers in the Wyoming Valley. So if you can find a copy, Zebulon Butler is worth a read. My online recommendation is an ebook available on archive.org called The Massacre of Wyoming. The Acts of Congress for the Defense of the Wyoming Valley, Pennsylvania, 1776 to 1778, with the petitions of the sufferers by the massacre of July 3rd, 1778, for congressional aid. As you can probably guess by that lengthy title, this relatively short work contains original petitions of victims and other legislative proposals regarding the massacre. Now, these give some good first hand descriptions of events even if written many years later, and with a bias toward receiving government assistance. The booklet was assembled from various sources for the Wyoming Historical and Geological Society in 1895. It's an interesting resource based on the testimony of those who were there for this relatively obscure event. As always, you can search for the document on archive.org, or just use the direct link that I've included at the bottom of the blog entry for this episode. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. 
Look for The Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.